Welcome to The Green Insider, powered by eRenewable. Each and every podcast, hosts Mike Niemer and Greg Frank will bring you energy experts to help you better understand the renewable and sustainability space. Education is important to us because it's important to you, the listener. Now here's Mike Niemer and Greg Frank. And we welcome you into episode 157 of The Green Insider, powered by eRenewable, alongside Mike Niemer. My name is Greg Frank. We're going to get to the content of the episode in just a minute, but we're going to check in with Mike very quickly first. Of course, Mike is the CEO of eRenewable, and he's got a few words for us. Let's hear from Mike now, and then it's on to episode 157. Hi, Mike Niemer here, CEO of eRenewable. If you're a wind, solar, or battery storage developer, and you're looking to find an off-taker, Our online live auction is a perfect platform to help you find that buyer. Conversely, if you're a CNI customer and you're looking to establish a PPA or VPPA, our auction platform could work for you. To learn more about how we can assist you with your power purchase agreement, visit us at eRenewable.com. And now, back to the Green Insider. And we welcome you into episode 157 of the Green Insider, powered by eRenewable, alongside Mike Niemer. My name is Greg Frank. Scott Kavitan is our guest, the CEO and co-founder of Jump.co. We're going to bring Scott on in just a second, but Mike, uh, it's a Monday morning as we jump in here, early December. A couple more here before we wrap up for the holidays for 2022. How was your weekend? Weekend was great. Good football, both in college and the pros. Uh, not so much for the Houston Texans home team, but other than that, all good. U of H still number one in uh, basketball. Mm-hmm. You know, we saw some great games in college. Uh, luckily, the uh, TCU stayed in the final four. It's always good to have a Texas school in there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's funny you mentioned having a Texas school in there on my radio show. And, and we'll see if it works out this way. But when they announced the final four was going to be in Houston in April, I said, well, what if we had an all Texas final four? Because you got UH really good. Texas is looking really good. Baylor is really good. Texas Tech is probably the only reach in that four. It could, would be pretty cool if that happened. Uh, that probably the first of its kind to have it all in one state for basketball. I know you're a Jayhawk, though. I'm a Jayhawk. So, <laughs> yeah, good for that. But anyway, let's bring Scott on now. As uh, Again, his name is Scott uh, Kaviton, the co-founder and CEO at Jump.co. This is episode 157 of the Green Insider, powered by your renewable. Scott, thanks for taking the time to join us. How are you doing? I am doing great. Thanks for having me. And uh, I just uh, just got back from uh, Miami where there was a lot of football, the international kind going on because of the World Cup. And then uh, was there for Art Basel, which was um, really quite fascinating. Not not super my scene, but there's a whole bunch of Web3 crypto things that are happening around it. So it was really good. Really good. Yeah. And, and you mentioned the crypto stuff. That's kind of your space at uh, jump.co. Tell us a little bit about how you got into that space, obviously, 10 years ago, I don't think anybody was in the space. So, uh, yeah, I, I have uh, what can only be uh, called sort of a circuitous route. I think with a lot of folks who get into Web3. So I've, I've been in tech for 20 plus years, cut my teeth at Amazon, turn of the century. I uh, was really active in a bunch of uh, open source, open technology platforms, um, was a sort of technology person, moved over to the business side, and and since then have uh, built, scaled, and sold a couple of venture-backed companies, one in the mobile space, one in the point-of-sale space. Um, and so my team and I have been working together now, geez, for 10 years. And so after we sold our last company in 2018, we just said, hey, let's take a look at this crypto thing. And so started diving in and, and looking at it. And, you know, honestly, lots of... of uh, <laughs> 
we'll just call them shady characters abound in the space. And so we really wanted to focus on tangible, interesting, compelling use cases. Um, and so that's what we built here at Jump. It's a physically backed uh, NFT platform for you know folks who have uh, physical assets like tradables, fine art, <clears throat> vintage cars that they want to be able to represent as an NFT and then be able to do kind of cool things with that. I can I can dive in more later, but that's that's in a nutshell. You know, Scott, uh, when you, when you talk about Web one, two, three, and NFTs and crypto, a lot of listeners out there don't follow any of that. They know, right. of it, but don't really know of it. You know what I mean? It's two different ways of knowing about it. You can be familiar, and you can really know. Can you briefly go through the evolution of Web one, two, and three to tell them where we're at now? Because Web three is very popular to be out there in the marketplace. And then how does all that tie into crypto and then the NFT? I'm assuming they all kind of lead together, don't they? Or run together? Yeah, they do. Um, and it's, it's a good, it's a good distinction to kind of break it down between web one, two, and three. And, and really the, the keys to each of those, the underpinnings of each of those sort of quote unquote revolutions was some technological advance. Um, for web one, we're talking, you know, late nineties, early two thousands, um, and really, it was about, you know, people being able to create websites and do interesting things on the web. This was just a brand new thing, super big deal. Um, <clears throat> and guess what? It led to a lot of speculation. It led to a lot of crazy Super Bowl ads in 2001. Um, and I'll come back to that. There's a reason I mentioned that. Um, but ultimately, the technology was really compelling. It just takes a lot longer for, for it to actually take hold and, and do what, you know, sort of the promise of it is. Um, so with a lot of these, you know, technologically disruptive um, periods, you see a big uh, speculative boom leads to a bubble, leads to a crash. But over the course of time, it, it gets really, really interesting. Web 2 sort of came out of the 2007, 2008, 2009, a function of the, the economic downturn and the rise of what's what's known as cloud computing. So these are, um, instead of having to go buy servers, stand them up in some some data center somewhere and do interesting things with that, you could just literally slap down a credit card and you'd have, you know, a server up and running and, and you didn't have to manage it. Um, and so all of a sudden that opened up possibilities for a whole new range of, of um, uh, software, ultimately known as software as a service or sometimes called SaaS um, for the acronym. And then <clears throat> Web3 was founded in around um, sort of the, the Web3 was a function of a bunch of technologies happening, but ultimately it's about um, cryptocurrencies or um, at their root, there's this concept of a public ledger, this idea that something that anyone can inspect because it's public, and on that ledger, people can verify that things have happened. And that's sort of the underpinning of crypto. Um, it's a lot of people have bolted a lot of different things onto it, like, you know, currencies and NFTs and all these kinds of things. But really, at its heart, it's a public ledger that people can append to and ultimately verify that they did something. Uh, and that is very useful because a lot of things people just have to say, yeah, I trust that happened. And in this case, you can actually verify that it happened. And so um, that's super high level, kind of the, the web one, two and three. And, and we're in the midst of web three. And, and earlier this year, um, lots of crypto Super Bowl ads. Um, FTX was one of the big ones. And guess what? You know, after they dug under the covers, they realized there wasn't actually much there. Um, because ultimately it had nothing to do with the technology. It had to do with a guy named Sam Bankman Freed who ran the thing, who just made up a bunch of stuff and lied and ultimately took deposits that customers put into their 
uh, system to, to, you know, basically trade on, um, they took those to, to basically line their pockets. And it's some pretty shady stuff. That guy should be doing some jail time. I don't know if he will. Um, but you know, the underlying technology is, had nothing's changed. It's still extremely, extremely compelling. And ultimately, you know, it's going to take five, 10 years for this to reach mass adoption, just like web one, just like web two. We're seeing the same thing happen here with web three. Now, when you talk about Web3 and giving everybody a, a trail so they know what's been done and it's verified, so to speak, how's that different than blockchain or is blockchain involved in that Web3? Yeah, but blockchain is that uh, blockchain is another term for that public ledger. Um, so it's basically, you know, uh, a chain of blocks. That's literally how, how the technology is, is thought of. And that's really just a ledger. So every time you, you append to that ledger, I moved these currency over here to this wallet, for example. Um, you put that on the blockchain and then everybody verifies it. And then, yes, that, that actually happened. <laughs> so, you know, people talk about all this dark money or, you know, scammers on in the crypto space. Um, but because of this public ledger and especially because of the tools and the way that people are engaging with it, it's actually much harder <laughs> to hide your money with crypto now. Because there's a public ledger of how it moves around. Um, and, you know, if you think about something like banking, if I wire money through a couple different banks and especially a couple different um, uh, jurisdictions, it's very easy to obfuscate that money moving around. Um, with crypto, not so much. So, um, yeah. Scott, I just want to ask you a little bit more about the structural setup at Jump in terms of employees. And uh, I think another thing that, you know, a lot of people, just commoners that are, you know, not working in the space, but, you know, are following the news about crypto and NFTs. Like, there's probably an educational element to all of this that maybe you guys are trying to get out and, and try and help grow your own business. So from a, you know, structural standpoint from within, what kind of people are you looking to bring to the business? And, you know, in terms of backgrounds and, and just, you mentioned the web one, web two, when web three, how much kind of educating do you have to do with the people that you guys bring on to kind of make sure that you guys have that shared focus? Yeah, that's, that's a, that's a good question. So, you know, earlier this year when we, when we really started the company in earnest, we, we found our first partner that we'll be announcing that early next year, and um, what we found was the technology is complicated. People talk about protocols and gas fees and just these things that get lost in the noise. And really, ultimately, what we're doing is we're making it easy for people to, you know, buy, share and, and sell essentially collectibles. Um, and so there happens to be a bunch of technology under that. Um, but in our case, you know, especially like so one of our partners is in the trading card space. Um, I, I can show up and say, Hey, I have a thousand bucks. And I, I think Tom Brady's, you know, he's never going to retire because he just lost a bunch of money on FTX. I mean, that's a whole yeah. other story, but, uh, so I, I can say, Hey, I want to put a thousand bucks into Tom Brady. And we basically give you the tools to say, Hey, I'm going to drill down and buy this specific card. Or you know what? I, I believe in him as a whole and I want to take a position in Tom Brady. So you can basically spread that thousand dollars across a range of different assets. Maybe it's a little bit of a rookie card. Maybe it's a, a jersey that he wore for one of the Super Bowl victories, right? Um, and so when you think about those as use cases, I didn't talk about crypto at all. But underneath it, that verifiable component, the blockchain, the, the technologies we're using to, to validate and verify that are, are all there. Um, and so, you know, that, that's kind of how we see this. 
ultimately um, where, where Jump comes in is we actually power these different marketplaces for folks. So it might be one for vintage cars. I was down in Miami talking with folks in the fine art space. Um, same thing. You might want to take a position in an artist. And so how do you do that if you don't have a lot of understanding? Well, that normally has been relegated to to really the, you know, quote unquote, the 1%. Um, who've been able to to participate in that because they knew who to talk to. And in our case, we're making it really easy for people to to take a piece of or a position of these things and not have to know a lot of the technology underneath it. Um, but, you know, that that then becomes critical for us to build trust in our customers because they have to believe that we know what we're doing and we're not just another, you know, FTX looking to try and, you know, bilk them of their money. So. Well, I understand a little bit about what you're talking about. You know, earlier, Greg mentioned that uh, I'm a Kansas Jayhawk. Well, of course, when we won the national championship last year, there was a KU marketplace in the NFT space. I bought a piece of the court or whatever it might have been and a, a couple of the cards of the players, you know, just for the sake of having them. And, and it yeah. goes, I got this marketplace when I go into the portal and I can list it for sale or I can just keep hanging on to it. And maybe somebody wants to pay up later for it if one of these guys really becomes successful. Is that traditionally how that marketplace that you keep referring to, is it just that simple? You find a marketplace of whatever your school or whatever topic is, and there's usually you're going to find a marketplace to buy an NFT to own a piece of whatever that is. Yeah, that's right. And then and then the other piece about that NFT is because you own that NFT and you can verify you know, within the blockchain, there's tools that do that for you. You can now use that NFT to be able to get access to events. So you know, while I was down in Art Basel, I own a lot of NFTs for different projects that got me access to events. Um, it got me, you know, free services for a range of different things. And so really what this is all about are, are these NFTs actually can, can uh, provide some utility. There's a finite number of them uh, for any given project, whether it's, you know, um, uh, KU or, or, you know, fine art or any of these kinds of things. And what happens there is you have sort of this monetization of the scarcity of the the actual asset itself, um, which gets really, really interesting from a secondary market perspective. But ultimately, you know, I think there's a little bit of membership. There's a little bit of utility that are behind these things that people are just realizing it's beyond just the speculative nature. Hey, I bought this thing and it's going to go up in value. That That's not really what it is. It's going to go up in value because there's some intrinsic um, utility to it that, that you can apply, you know, in the future, uh, if that makes sense. Scott, Mike just mentioned, uh, obviously, the uh, KU national championship element there. And, you know, I'm a big sports guy. I know Mike follows a lot. And I I noticed this, you know, dipping its toes. A lot of you mentioned Tom Brady. I see a lot of people putting their social media icons where their NFTs that they bought. And, you know, so I've definitely seen it. And, of course, the, you know, long known staple center in LA became the crypto.com arena or whatever it's called now, uh, you know, the building in Miami where he play FTX. So, uh, you know, I, I've definitely seen it just by following sports as closely I've, as I follow them. I've seen all this stuff kind of dip its toes into the sports waters quite a bit. And I'm just curious how wide ranging the kind of customer base is here. And, you know, you mentioned fine arts and it it just seems like there's people from all sorts of backgrounds getting involved here. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty typical of any disruptive technology. And, and, you know, I think unfortunately we've seen a lot of speculative players come in um, because, you know, they're hoping that they can buy something really cheap and it'll go up in value for the sheer nature of it just being speculative. 
that's starting to get washed out as people realize that not everything can go up, you know, in, in perpetuity, right? So then the question becomes, what's the underlying technology, technology actually provide for you? And that's where this whole, you know, access to events. Um, there's actually a restaurant in New York now that's selling NFTs that if you want to go to this restaurant, it's highly regarded and you can book a reservation, but it's out in three months. Well, if you have the money and you'd love to be able to go on a regular basis, you want to pay for that access. So you can essentially get an NFT and that NFT, if you show that NFT, when you walk in the door, you get a table no matter what. And guess what? People are willing to pay for that access. Um, and that's, that becomes a critical thing. And there's only a thousand of these things out there. So for the restaurant, every time that, that gets sold, let's say I move out of New York and I don't need access to that restaurant anymore. I can sell that on a secondary market. As part of the sale of that, the restaurant sees a kickback from that sale. So not only are they, you know, providing the access and the utility of these things, but you can actually, you know, monetize that scarcity better than you could before. Whereas a restaurant, you know, the, the math is really simple on a restaurant. No matter how popular it is, it's how many tables you have and what's your throughput on a, on a nightly basis. Well, if you can monetize the scarcity to that access, now all of a sudden you can have a really interesting business. So those are the kinds of use cases that I think um, NFTs and, and sort of the blockchain are going to enable that that aren't as speculative, um, that provide some you know real world value, if that makes sense. Well, I really do like hearing what you just said about the restaurant and how that NFT is being used for access to that restaurant. When you were talking about people buying NFT and think they can hold it and it's going to go up in value and, you know, heck, I was even the same way because that's emotionally what a person naturally wants to think. Then after I bought that, I remembered in 2000, I bought my first piece of real fine art. And the guy said, you have to buy it because you like looking at it in the room and you enjoy owning it. It's not that you're necessarily going to resell it and make money. You just enjoy having the piece. And really, when I remember that guy's speech about that, that's why I like owning a little piece of an NFT court that Kansas won the basketball game on. Yeah. Like looking at it, it's in my, you know, my app and I can see it. And that is a cool thing to do. So the question I have for you is, let's say that piece of fine art that I own or anybody else owns. And they wanted to make an NFT of that piece of art because it's a one of a kind. No one else has it. How does John Q. Public, like myself, sell a piece of that art as an NFT? Is that even possible for a layman to be able to go out and do? For sure, for sure. And that's that's part of uh, not only you know what we do at Jump, but there's a lot of platforms that enable you to do that. There's a couple components to that. The first one is you have to make sure you verify that piece of art and that the NFT is tied to that verified piece of art. That that actually turns out to be a hard problem because otherwise people could just create NFTs and say, yeah, 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 this is a, a Van Gogh, you know, and and so how do I know that? Well, it usually takes, uh, you know, a third party like a Sotheby's or a Christie's to verify that and then create the NFT. The next question becomes, well, you know, for a lot of art, it's out of the reach of, of most folks. So they can't necessarily drop, you know, two, five, 10, $20 million on a piece of art, but they want a piece of Van Gogh or they want a piece of, of Banksy or whatever it is. And so there's this ability to basically fractionalize or group by these assets. And that's another thing that's intrinsic or inherent with the NFTs. You can actually fractionalize them. And that gets really exciting um, because people <clears throat> from a collectible standpoint, you might make some money from it, sure, but the fact that you you have that um, that portion of it and there's some utility that goes along with it, maybe 
you get to actually visit that piece of artwork uh, when there's events at Art Basel, or you get to to participate in a community of folks who also own that, you know, a piece of that that artwork. That's where it gets really, really interesting. And then the underlying technology has something known as a royalty. And that royalty goes back to the owner every time there's a secondary transaction. So if I buy, you know, 10% of this, this painting uh, and I hold on to it for a couple of years, really enjoyed it. I got to take advantage of some utility. Then I sell that um, in the secondary market and it goes up in value. Some of that, some portion of that will actually go back to the original owner. So they, they continue to see a revenue stream from that, that they wouldn't have seen before. And so, to me, that's one of the, the really, really interesting aspects of uh, sort of NFTs and this technology. And now we're just applying it to the real world, to real world, you know, uh, uh, assets that are, are, you know, a limited amount of those things. This idea that you could just mint NFTs or create new value out of nothing is is not how this is going to is going to pan out. So, yeah, Scott, last one for me, kind of piggybacking off of that. You mentioned kind of how things pan out here. And I just want you to kind of take us into the future here. How do you kind of see the next five, 10 years in terms of crypto and, you know, other currencies that might emerge, just where are we headed here really the rest of the decade? Yeah, great, great question. So um, just like the, the you know, the turn of Web1 back in 2000, um, the big market leaders were AOL, Time Warner, uh, Alta Vista and Search and Yahoo. Right. Those, those companies are, are, don't even exist anymore, let alone, or, or they've been broken up. And, and where we saw the real disruption was after the crash. So the next big companies that are, that are going to be, um, interesting and compelling. And to me, the first, you know, $10 trillion company by market cap will be a web three company in the next 10 years. Um, you know, I firmly believe that Bitcoin, um, as much as I think Kathy Wood's a, a little aggressive in some of her, um, predictions. I do think that Bitcoin will reach a million dollars in the next 10 years, um, a single Bitcoin. And uh, ultimately, um, you know, I, I think this technology is going to become very pervasive, but you're not going to hear about the technology. You're going to hear about a verb around the technology, just like um, you don't search the web, you Google things. You don't transfer money to people via ACH, you Venmo them money. We're going to see those same use cases pull users forward that happen to be powered by Web3. And the, the magic of the tech is what's going to actually help people work together and, and see this, this um, uh, you know, crazy growth that will happen over the next 10 years. Well, the magic line you had in that uh, answer to Greg's question was your Bitcoin prediction going to $1 million per Bitcoin. <laughs> so the question is, for me now, is as you have Litecoin and Ether and all these other coins that are still popular, does that million dollars for the Bitcoin, if your prediction comes to drag all those higher too, or does it leave them behind? Do you have an I, I think it actually leaves them behind. I, I think the the reason there's all these other, you know, coins and currencies are out there are is because of some intrinsic issues with Bitcoin and Ethereum. I think Bitcoin and Ethereum will be the, the ones that exist um, in pretty much ubiquity in 10 years. I think the other ones will mostly fall away. Um, because of advances in technology will make it so that you don't need those other um, currencies. And so uh, I wouldn't call myself a Bitcoin maximalist, but, you know, it, it's definitely, you know, I, 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 <laughs> I hold a position in Bitcoin and, and it's been great, even though it's down right now. Like, I, I'm not concerned. I continue to hold. I'm, I'm very confident of it. Um, I've been through too many of these these um, 
technology cycles to know. And, and I continue to hear people, you know, saying, Oh, it's going to, you know, it's going to crash. It's going to be, it's going to go to nothing. Well, guess what? They said the same thing about the internet. They said the same thing about web two. Um, when the iPhone first came out, the, the CEO of Microsoft was calling it cute, right? So, so we know that <laughs> these disruptive technologies start as what people think is, is maybe a scam or a joke, but ultimately, um, if you can read the tea leaves correctly, you can, you can sort of navigate, um, where it's going to go. And, and that's, you know, the, that's the bet I'm placing for a third time. So, yeah. Well, very good. You know, uh, with regards to crypto mining here in Texas, we've got a lot of the mining data centers that are mining for it here, using a lot of power on the grid. We're seeing more and more of them trying to put power purchasing agreements in place on with renewable energy. Some of them are doing some, uh, demand response to, uh, so they're, they're, the energy they're using can be called away by the supplier and they get paid for that. Okay. And so we're seeing that continue to grow and grow and grow. And so do you see as the price you predict goes to a million dollars? Do you see it going to a million dollars because there's not room for more mining or that mining is also going to grow with that one million dollars? Cause they're already using a lot of power now. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a really good, a good question. So the, the key with most, uh, cryptocurrencies, at least the, the dominant ones, Bitcoin and, uh, Ethereum is that, is that the, there's a finite number of these potential, um, coins to be, or tokens to be mined. Uh, in the case of Bitcoin, it's 21 million total Bitcoin. And right now, I think we're sitting at about 19 million Bitcoin that have been found. So once we we find all those Bitcoin, that's a finite amount of these these uh, that are out there, and that's what will drive the scarcity, which will drive the the increase in value. So there'll be a, a law of diminishing returns when it comes to mining, where it'll just be too expensive to mine anymore. Um, but then what's happening is there are some new technologies known as instead of proof of work, which is the mining, there's this concept of proof of stake, and that says, "Hey, I, I've I've mined so many of these that I'm I am a trusted person to be able to verify that things are happening on this blockchain, and you should trust me with that." And so that that's a shift that we're seeing with away from the proof of work, which is very expensive from a power consumption perspective, to this proof of stake. But you had to get through the proof of work and these these first stages of mining to be able to implement a proof of stake model. It just requires you to, to, to basically do this heavy lifting with the mining and then transition to more sort of sustainable ways to take advantage of these things. So um, the, there's a really wordy answer to, uh, I think mining will see some, some you know, good days for a couple more years, but ultimately mining is going to be a tough game. Uh, there'll be consolidation. And uh, I think people will always rush to the, the cheapest power places they can find um, to, you know, to sort of do that arbitrage. Yeah. All right. Well, there he is, Scott Kaviton, the co-founder and CEO of jump.co on episode 157 of the green insider powered by you renewable. Scott, that's about all we got for you. We appreciate your time. Thanks again for hopping on and enjoy the holiday season. Yep. Thanks guys. Thanks for having me. Talk soon. See ya. All right. Again, alongside Mike Niemer, I'm Greg Frank. This has been episode 157 of the Green Insider powered by eRenewable. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts from, because as the saying goes, you learn something new every day and we were responsible for today's lesson. For Mike Niemer, I'm Greg Frank signing off here on the Green Insider. Everyone enjoy the rest of your day.